This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 244, Michelle Shea, Adventure Dining Guide, How to Cook in the Woods. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Boy, am I excited about our guest today. I know over the years, if you are like me, you've experienced the same thing, where you go into the backcountry somewhere and you start eating dehydrated foods or something, and over time, you're just like, this just really isn't cutting it, and you're looking for the solution for outdoors cooking that feels good and tastes good and is light enough to carry in the whole nine yards. So today I have Michelle Shea with us. And Michelle um, started out growing up in San Diego as a beach girl, but she fell in love with snowboarding, which took her through Colorado, and she's currently at Lake Tahoe. And uh, she also spent some time in New Zealand, and all of this led to her experiencing more and more of the outdoors, and that led on to her developing a business on adventure dining. And she says, cooking and nutrition for people in the outdoors, being able to eat real food on the trail. So... I'm looking forward to this. I think it's something that needs to be addressed, and I'm really excited to learn from Michelle. So, Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Michelle and I met at Outdoor Retailer just very briefly, and I'm excited to get more information from her about her new business. AdventureDiningGuide.com is where you can learn more about her business, and she's putting together all sorts of information that's going to go on to television and on to web-based shows as well about this outdoor cooking. So she is the expert that we're going to talk today. But before we dive into all of that, Michelle, I want to hear about your snowboarding a little bit. So tell us the story about how you got started snowboarding and, and where it led you. Absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up at the beach and just through one channel or another, I ended up going to the mountains. And the first time I went, I fell in love. I was hooked. And instantly, I just wanted to go as much as I possibly could. So my uh, last semester at college, I ended up going to Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. And my whole thought process behind this was, where can I go in the world that has snow right now where I can go to school and keep pursuing this passion? So sure enough, I went out to New Zealand and I met some wonderful people. We went up to the mountains every weekend and it was just nonstop from there. <laughs> so Michelle, you ended up snowboarding in a lot of different places. So did you start snowboarding then in the mountains in California or in New Zealand? Uh, in California, yep. So I grew up near Big Bear. I went up to Big Bear a couple times a year when I was younger and uh, spent a lot of time in Mammoth when I was in college. I was on the San Diego State snowboarding team. Then I got into some competitive snowboarding and that really just kind of took me to the next level. And at that point, I would say that it actually turned into a full-blown addiction was probably the best way to explain it. Um, I had to go as much as possible. And, uh, you know, when you're doing a sport as much as I was, you know, you kind of are continually pushing yourself and getting to the next level and trying to get to bigger and better. And that eventually brought me into the backcountry. And um, spending time in the backcountry through snowboarding with splitboarding and snowshoeing and whatever I could to get to bigger peaks and bigger mountains, it really opened my eyes to this new world of spending time away from civilization. And that's really what I learned was that, you know, when I'm in the middle of nowhere, I have to be prepared. And this preparation is something that's so different than spending time at a ski resort. So it's a different mentality. And it really just opened my eyes to the beauty of the wilderness and how much you really need to take everything seriously and be prepared. You you ended up in New Zealand first or was it Colorado first? 
I mean, how did that work out? Yeah, so I went um, from San Diego to New Zealand to Mammoth to Colorado to Lake Tahoe with a lot of New Zealand and Argentine trips in the mix of uh, our opposite seasons. So it was just basically about five years of an endless winter. And I was <laughs> oh, doing everything, <laughs> everything I could to just keep riding. Oh, that's wonderful. So are you still crazy about snowboarding now? I absolutely am. I, I live in Lake Tahoe, and you know this is such a great place because I really have the best of both worlds here. I have wonderful mountains for the winter time and we have so much snow right now it's just unfathomable and um you know in the summertime it just gives us that great option of all these other outdoor activities so really this sparked my thinking about adventure dining guide because i'm in the mecca of outdoors people right now you know i have friends from every different sport and activity being it skiing or climbing or backpacking mountain biking you know whatever time of the year there's people outdoors being active. And so I'm able to talk to them about what they do and what they like to cook. And it just inspires me. So this is such a great place for me to be. And I'm so happy to be here. Oh, that's very cool. So I want to hear all about the food in a couple of minutes, but I need to drill a little deeper on the snowboarding. A lot of people <laughs> snowboard, right, Michelle? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But let's not so. assume that everybody does. There are an awful lot of listeners out there who never have. And they're kind of like, oh, that looks like that might be fun. So I'm just going to ask, <laughs> why snowboard? You know, honestly, it's just one of the most wonderful and freeing feelings. And I've had friends that, you know, you said you never really get a great powder day until you're on a snowboard. <laughs> I'm not big of a skier, so I can't really compare it to it, but that's it. It's just, it's addicting. And it's this feeling of floating and control. And I love that it's not a team sport. That's something that really drew me to it because I grew up playing a lot of team sports. So it's just that individual expression. And it's an art form in certain ways that you can really just go out and either if you're having a bad day and you need to get out some frustration and some emotion, I go really fast and ride really hard. Or if I'm with a lot of my friends, then we're a little bit more of a creative expression. Then we could go out and find ways to creatively attack different parts of the mountain. And honestly, it's just, it's a social event. You know, you could do it by yourself. You could do it with friends and be social, but it's just a wonderful sport. And there's a lot of great ways to start nowadays. You know, there's a lot of the learn to ride programs. Burton does some cool stuff. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of resources online. So even if you do want to get started in this sport, you know, you're not alone. There's great teachers. There's great ways to get out there and to enjoy the winter. Well, I have to confess, Michelle, I love snowboarding. <laughs> but I haven't done yeah. much of it. And I, I told my kids that they absolutely should learn how to snowboard after they were excellent on skis. <laughs> and, my parents made me do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did that because I always looked at the snowboard as a little bit limiting in some ways. I thought, you know, if my kids want to backcountry ski, you can carry a board in, but it's hard to ride the board in, right? Often yeah, you can yeah, ride the board out. But. And it's it's funny that you say that because really the backcountry culture has changed so much in the last five years. Splitboarding is huge now. So that's really opened a lot of doors to people who were traditionally limited just because they didn't have the skins and the, the skis that you're talking about. So there's big changes, there's big opportunities, and it's just, it's such a great sport that, you know, if you ever want to talk more, I can talk all day about snowboarding. Give me a call, <laughs> give me an email. <laughs> well, splitboarding <laughs> certainly opened up the doors, and that's a pretty late yeah. uh, development. I mean, splitboarding hasn't been around all that long. When do you think it hit the market? You know, it hasn't a lot of different retrospects, but it really, I would say, started to get popular in the masses about five years ago. And there's a lot of great athletes that really opened the doors to this, you know, Jeremy Jones being one of them. He's a Tahoe guy. And just his uh, his series of movies, The Deeper, Steeper, and Further, I believe are the three, it kind of showed people that you didn't just have to do these extreme heli lines. You know, you could just strap on a board, go into the middle of nowhere, and find great untouched churning. 
And there's a lot of other companies out there that have been making wonderful boards. I'm a huge Never Summer fan. I love, love, love my Never Summer split board and all their boards. So, you know, there's tons of great opportunities to find the gear you need to get out there. And there's a lot of great avalanche classes too, which is huge because if you're going to spend the time away from any resort, you got to be prepared. You got to know what you're doing. And if you screw up, then it's not a very good situation. So be prepared and take classes. Yeah, absolutely. So Michelle at Outdoor Retailer, I got to uh, put on that avalanche pack for the airbag. And oh, nice. yep. I got to fire the thing off and see what it was like for that to go off around your head, you know. And Yeah, I have one of those. They're great. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And my time in the backcountry, I just avoid avalanche terrain as much as I can. That means I'm yep. avoiding a lot of the fun I could have had, you know, if I had a little bit better equipment and, and what have you. So Anyway, you know what though? That's smart and safe. And when it comes to that sort of conditions, it's just, it's so much better to be safe than sorry. And I cannot ever, ever, ever stress enough that if you're not prepared, if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. You know, it's not something you can just grab a pack and throw on and go in the middle of nowhere. You have to be prepared. And I think that's what splitboarding has done is it's made more terrain accessible, but it's also increased a lot of people's avalanche susceptibility. So just be careful. That's the, the number one thing I can say about that. Thank you for saying that for me. On many shows when we've been talking about skiing in the backcountry, I was the one that had to give that speech. So <laughs> I appreciate that. And I always do, Michelle. You live in Colorado. You've heard all the news reports. People come here oh, yeah. every year, and they jump into something that they shouldn't, not knowing. And it's not because they're stupid. It's just because they don't know, and they get yep. hurt. So yep. anyway, I couldn't agree more. Learn about avalanche safety. It's worth it. And when you do, don't get cocky. Because actually the people that tend to get hurt in avalanches are often the ones that have more training. The training alone is not enough to save you. Exactly. So, you it's, know, just, it's this unpredictable force of nature. So Yeah, it really is. Well, I, I really like the idea of the split boarding. And I like it that you can give us a little bit of uh, an intro into that because it really is a new development. I mean, you said, yeah, I got big in the last five years or so. So I was teaching my kids to ski even before that. But uh -huh. split boarding, the idea that I could go into the backcountry on a split board and then snap it together and snowboard out, that really is appealing. It's awesome. And you know what? Even if you don't want to shell out all the money to buy a kit because it can be pretty expensive, there's some at-home kits that you can take a table saw and use an old board and put something together. So there's opportunities out there to, to experiment. <laughs> so you snowboarded competitively. I did. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, I kind of did a big range. I was never the best at it, but it's something that gave me the opportunity to travel a lot, to meet a lot of great people, and to improve in my sport. And I, I realized through competitive snowboarding that personally, I just don't have that competitive spirit in me. I don't care. I'd rather just go out on the hill and have fun with and ride. But um, I did some Burton Opens. I did big mountain stuff, a lot of rail jams, kind of a little bit of everything. And it's it's interesting because, you know, I feel like a lot of people that are coming up in their sport nowadays, be it skiing and snowboarding or, you know, whatever, that's just they're so focused on one type of competition, slope slile or half pipe or big mountain that you kind of miss the whole variety of the sport. And I was more interested in just doing a little bit of everything. So I guess a jack of many trades would probably be the best way to put it. 
Well, that's a lot of fun, too. Well, I think snowboarding is wonderful. I really do. And I have to say, I'm Thank primarily you. a skier, but I'm not one of these skiers who, who looks down on snowboarders. And hopefully, you know, snowboarders aren't looking down on skiers. We do ride the, the slopes different ways, but it's all fun and it's all great. So Absolutely. thanks for kind of you sharing know, that with us. Of course. And, you know, just a quick tip on that is, like you said, you know, everybody shares the mountain together and there's no need to have all that animosity. It's just, you know, everybody's out pretty much doing the same thing, but with a little variation to it. So disrespect giving respect gets respect oh absolutely you bet well let's talk <laughs> about how all of this led you into cooking so snowboarding mm-hmm. and cooking most people wouldn't get the connection there so explain how that <laughs> happened absolutely um you know it really started just from believe it or not being in a lodge and watching a bunch of japanese snowboarders make lunch and when i was in new zealand because a lot of the opposite season people would travel down to new zealand and we'd get big group of japanese people and canadians and americans so i mean you we at europeans people from all over the world but it was amazing because a lot of my friends from japan they travel in these really tight groups and they would come in for lunch and they would use one teeny tiny pot and they would cook tea and soup. I mean, they would feed 10 people off of this one little pot. And I just watched in envy going, oh my goodness, I'm eating a granola bar and you guys have this like three course meal that you made using barely anything. And that really just sparked my primitive thinking about, all right, there has to be a better way. And this, the simplicity to it was, you know, taking a basic ingredients, a hot item to heat them up and just making awesome lunches. So that kind of sparked my thinking about how do I, how do I make this better? And then just through spending time in the outdoors with various friends and people, especially people from all over the world, I got the opportunity to see how other cultures interact and eat. And, you know, food has such a great way of bringing people together, just like spending time in the outdoors does that, you know, when you have a meal with somebody, it's really a great opportunity to just get to know them. And having an adventure is the same thing. So I kind of wanted to take these two and just marry them together. And that's how Adventure Diamond Guide really came about. Oh, that's fun. You know, I, I shared briefly in the introduction that I've, I found this to be a major need. And the reason is because I you know, backpacking food, dehydrated food, freeze-dried foods, they're great. They have their place, and I, I highly support the companies that are creating that stuff for us. But that said, I can't eat it day after day after day after day after day. On the mm-hmm. extended trips, I'm like, oh, I've got to have some real food here. It's just something about it for me makes me want to uh, to eat something that's more like what I would have at home. Mm-hmm. And so the question, and it, it's kind of the $1,000 question, is how can we take real food on our adventures, whether that's backpacking or mountain biking or camping or, or you know different types of treks or expeditions, it doesn't matter. We all need to eat. But how can we take that food in without carrying a lot of excess weight and then enjoy more of the home-cooked meal when we're remote like that? Absolutely. And that's such a great question that, you know, really, I get to talk to people a lot about that because it is a common concern. And I'm with you. Dehydrated meals are great, but it does get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm ready for something different. And they can get really expensive too. And be careful with the labels because some dehydrated meals really don't have very good nutrition. So my, my planning process for these trips, it's four stages. And really let, what I like to focus on is bringing foods that support your journey, that are nutritious, and that you know are things that you would normally like to eat. And I think that's a big thing to take into consideration too, is that you don't want to mix up your diet too much because your body is already going through a lot. When you're traveling in the outdoors, you're more susceptible to injuries, to getting sick, just to mental and physical exhaustion. So you want to have the right foods that support this. And bringing foods that are nutrition-based will really, really help support your body so you have a more successful journey. 
And uh, going on that line, my process is one, storage requirements. The first thing that I look at when I'm planning for a backcountry adventure is what kind of storage am I using? Do I have refrigeration? Do I have a cooler? Do I have a bear box? Do I have a really small pack? I mean, what are what do I need as far as my storage goes? And then after I kind of get that figured out, that really helps me break down the foods that I can bring with me. So the next phase is I look at the duration of the journey. And with that, you know, it again, it really cuts down the amount of foods I have because this is really where longevity and storage and, you know, maybe you need dehydrated things, all of these length of the food survival comes into play. And then the third, I look at my cooking options. Now, am I going to be making a fire? Do I have a stove? Do I need extra fuel? Have all the little details that go into preparing and making this food. Or am I going stoveless? Again, tons of options, but finding the one that fits best for you and your journey helps you go through this process. And the fourth one is just your personal style. And the best thing I can say about that is stay true to yourself. If you like eating a certain way at home, try and bring that into the backcountry. You know, reward yourself with foods that you really like to eat. Um, if you don't like cooking at home, if you don't like making big meals, don't plan on bringing big meals on the trail because chances are you're going to be tired and not want to do extra work. So just stay true to yourself. And that's kind of the, the basic process. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hand on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180TAC.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. So I like your four steps. They were storage requirements, duration of the journey, um, how you're going to cook, what your cooking options yep. are going to be, and then your personal style, staying true to yourself. How does this translate into getting the right food and going? So kind of after looking at these four steps, it'll give you a better idea of the type of foods you need. 
Um, so for example, if you're looking at a small container, like a bear box, you know, and you're going to be out in the back country for three or four days and you're cooking with, let's say a jet boil, you know, that already tells me that, okay, I need foods that are light, that pack small, that don't take up a lot of space, that last without refrigeration and heat quickly in that type of stove. So instantly looking at these can, like three, three considerations really gives me a better idea of the type of foods I need. So from there, I can go to the store and say, okay, you know, I have this much space. I need some noodles. I need, and then from there, we can start looking at our nutrition requirements. You know, we want carbs, we want fats, we want salts, we want things that will supplement our body. And there's a lot of different styles when it comes to trail nutrition. But again, you know, stay true to yourself. So kind of stick to the sort of diet that you like to eat at home. So then you're not putting your body through tons of shock when you're out in the backcountry. You're eating the same similar type of foods, but with real foods that translate into backcountry. Okay. And here's a tough question. What about weight? (laughs) What about weight? Oh yeah. Weight is huge. You can mean that's a big, big part of it. And you know, there's lots of options when it comes to weight, but dehydrated is a good way to go for a lot of people. Um, that's most people swear by it, but you know, it, again, it kind of just has to fit your style and your cooking. And, you know, if you have a weight, uh, excuse me, if you have weight concerns, then you need to instantly start thinking about light foods and, you know, powders and things that have big flavors, but don't weigh a lot. You know, there's a lot of different options. And believe it or not, one of my favorite places to go is Asian supermarkets. I love Asian supermarkets because they are just packed with things that you can't find at regular supermarkets. They have tons of dehydrated options, tons of powdered options, uh, lots of different really lightweight noodles and rices. And it's really inexpensive. Would you describe for us, and you don't have to give us any deep, dark secrets, but describe Uh for us a recipe that you really like to take, let's say, backpacking. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, one of my favorites I came up with, and I think I'm thinking of it because I was just talking about Asian stores, is a curry noodle bowl. And it's a dehydrated meal that I made that you don't need a dehydrator. And the awesome thing about this is that you can eat it cold or heated up. So you have all this option, and it's great any time of the year. But it's it's simple. It's just um, lightweight rice noodles. And it's extremely lightweight, by the way. But it's lightweight rice noodles, um, some miso powder that you can just get at one of those uh, miso soups. It has some curry, some coconut powder, garlic salt, and just really, really light, basic seaweed. And that's about it. And then you just add water. You can either heat it up again or just add some cold water, let the noodles soak, and it reconstitutes itself. And it's extremely lightweight. So kind of finding things that work in these situations, it it helps you prepare. And this is something that I make. I have tons of little baggies of these noodle bowls. So if on hand, I'm just happy to go out on a journey, I've got them ready to go. So, you know, it's not this big preparation that a lot of people get overwhelmed with when it comes to these trips. It's stuff that you can have and you can eat it at home or you could take it in the backcountry with you. Okay. So if people want to know more about this sort of approach to wilderness cooking, where, uh-huh. where can they get more information? We're, oh, absolutely. Uh, AdventureDiningGuide.com. I've got tons of great recipes on there. There's some stuff about nutrition in the backcountry. I'm an average nutritionist, um, just amateur, but I absolutely love learning about different types of foods. And each month, you know, I try and bring different ideas and recipes, things that you'd find at home in a normal setting into the backcountry. For example, seaweed. Seaweed is lightweight. It's packed with nutrients. It's basically a great substitute for bringing vegetables. And it's super easy to carry. You can eat it dry. You can throw it in soups. There's so many options. So 
there's tons of fun things like that, and I like to explore these things on the AdventureDiningGuide.com site. AdventureDiningGuide.com, and I'm on there right now. I see that you broke recipes up by activity, which is pretty cool. So you can click on camping and get camping-friendly recipes, trail sports, snow sports, water sports, hunting and angling, and then you have other divisions like types of food, Latin, Mediterranean, exactly. um, and then you have it broken up by meal, lunch, breakfast, dinner. So there's, holy cow, there's a lot of information on here. <laughs> I, I try to be thorough, but, you know, there's just, there's so many neat things about food, and food relates to every activity, age, and ability. So I really wanted to just keep it broad so everybody can come on, find something that fits their needs, and go out and explore. And that's really just my whole goal with this is to get more people outdoors to make the outdoor experience approachable and to not feel overwhelmed when it comes to planning and packing you know and I think that scares a lot of people away from spending time in the wilderness so if you know what you're looking for you know how to prepare for it and you have good food you're gonna have a great time mm. or it'll help you have a great time <laughs> well let me ask you for some advice then of course this last summer uh, my two of my boys and I took a uh, through hike of the Holy Cross wilderness area and there's an episode I think on our show about it so people could go find out more information there but my goal was for none of us to lose weight and the reason is because we're tall skinny fellows we don't need to lose weight, right? But Absolutely. we also had to carry nine days of food. There was no resupply. Yep. Add to that that the area where we went didn't have trails. So it wasn't like there was a trail and we would opt to go off trail to, to experience something. There were not trails. It was an area that was just so remote. People don't go there. And so Sounds that, awesome. Well, it was a it was a blast. But here's the yeah. food part of that, right? Mm -hmm. It always took us about five more hours to get to our destination than we planned because we're off trail. And that means more exhaustion because we're off trail. Longer mm -hmm. days because we're off trail. Less time in camp because we're off trail. You get, you get the point here. Yep. And so we took, because we were concerned about this, we took dehydrated foods with us. And where it says, you know, it was two servings, we go, oh, no, no, that's one serving for sure. So we took double the food that it said on the package. And then we also took things like peanut butter mixed with butter, things that were calorie dense. We even yep. took, each of us carried a, a jug of olive oil just so when we made our dehydrated food, we could pour olive oil into it to get more calories because it's, it's calorie dense and very healthy. Definitely. And so we did all of those things. And nine days later, we had all lost about 10 pounds each. <laughs> so what do we do? What's your advice? <laughs> You know, I think the word that you really hit on there is calorie dense. And, you know, in, in situations like that, it's hard because you're burning so many calories per day that it's tough to keep up on your body's needs. I mean, if, especially if you're going off trail and doing all this extra work and exertion. I think the most important thing for situations like that is snacks. Really, you need to keep up with your body's metabolism. You throw snacks that are extremely caloric dense in every pocket. So every time you stop, you're keeping up with your calories. And a great example of this is um, I talked with Trauma, who is a long distance through hiker. And he lives in Truckee, so he was explaining his journey when him and his uh, co-hiker hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail in the wintertime. And their story is phenomenal. If you ever get a chance to check it out, it's Justin Lichter and Sean Forey. And 
their, their story is awesome. But that was basically their main concern is that, you know, they're in the wintertime, they're burning so many calories, just A, from walking and B, from the cold, that they had to constantly keep up with this need. So they would get high caloric, just dense foods, keep them in their pockets, and every single time they stop, just eat, even if they're not hungry, just so their body is constantly getting calories. And like you said, you know, there's oils, there's peanut butters, there's lots of great foods that you can put in small containers that pack really well, that pack really light, that still have great nutrition, especially especially with those oils. You know, you're getting some great omegas, you can get things with antioxidants, so it helps your blood flow and keeps up with all the free radicals. And again, and then again, you know, you're helping your body get all the calories it needs. Well, I can see how it would be even more challenging in the wintertime. That would be tough. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of at the point, Michelle, where I'm starting to think I'm willing to carry extra weight to have the food that I know is going to do me right on the trail. And just got to be a happy medium somewhere, though. But I want to be able to take some of your recipes that you have here and uh, try to kind of strike the balance between weight and nutrition and calories so that we can eat better. Definitely. And like you said, you know, it, it is a balance. And the hard thing with eating in the outdoors is there's no one right way that works for everybody. Every journey, every weather, every cooking style, every, you know, storage style, it's different. Well, when I met you in OR, Michelle, I handed you a 180 flame because I thought it went along with your, your recipes and your, your adventure dining guide. I was just curious what your response is to it so far. You haven't had much time to play with it, I know, but so far, what do you think? <laughs> you know, I, I took it out and I set it up and it, it was really, really easy to put together, which was awesome. Um, the whole functionality of it, I really, really liked it. And I could see it being used in a lot of different applications, which was exciting because, you know, especially for backpacking, being in the middle of nowhere and heavily wooded areas, it's just awesome. And it was really sturdy, which I was impressed about, too. I could see putting, a, even if, you know, you're in those situations where maybe you have a lightweight pot or you have a heavier pot if you're not just backpacking, like at a camping situation, too. It has that functionality to it, which I thought was really neat. I'm very excited to play with it some more in the future, as soon as we get rid of some of the snow. Play with it a little bit, but then contact us, and I'll see to it that you get a 180 stove, and that's a larger version. It's still lightweight. It's just 10.4 ounces, but oh, cool. um, the stove is big enough you can grill on it as well. Awesome. So that's a great idea. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like, too, that it's something that I could use as a backup. For example, if I'm car camping or, you know, going somewhere where I'm not carrying it, but I just need to have a backup stove in case like a propane stove isn't working or, you know, things just go wrong. And I like to be prepared. So I see that as an awesome opportunity to either use that as my first stove or a backup stove. Oh, yeah. The other thing that we really enjoyed about it on our through hike, we took a 180 stove with us, but we could, if we wanted to in the evening, sit around and feed twigs into the stove and not worry about burning too much fuel. Nice. So that allowed us to cook things we wouldn't have cooked otherwise. It allowed us to just sit around and enjoy the fire and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you're carrying your fuel in, then you're going to be pretty careful about how much of that fuel you're using up. And uh, with yep. natural fuels, it's all around you. So kind of opens up some some options you wouldn't have otherwise. Especially on that nine-day through hike. I mean, you probably would have burned through a lot of canisters of fuel. So that way it just even lightens your pack a little bit more. You know, it's kind of funny. We took some uh, alcohol stoves as well and a little bit of alcohol. And we thought okay. there are going to be instances where we might want to use that. The crazy part about it is one evening it had been raining and everything was wet and it was really late. And another storm was headed in, so we wanted to get under our tarps really fast. Sure. So we grabbed the alcohol burners, thinking this should be the fast way, right? Holy cow, it was not. It did not work. Really? We struggled and struggled and struggled and couldn't even get our water to boil. We went through almost all of our fuel that we had brought on the trip 
trying to boil enough water just for the three of us to hydrate our food. Wow. Well, just and, goes to show you it's good to have backups. Yeah. So the next morning, it had rained all night. Everything was soaked to the bone. And I said, forget this. I'm going to use my skills and do my wood stove. You know, And with the natural wood stove, I had a fire going faster. We boiled water faster. We didn't have any issues. If you know how to cook with, with wet wood, then it wasn't any problem. And then in the end, I thought, I wouldn't even bring the alcohol next time. It wasn't worth it. Do you ever have a problem with fire ban areas with that stove? That is something that people need to be aware of. And there are some areas where fire bands are more or less constant, but most of the time the fire bands are only if there's a dry season. So like in Colorado, there will be a few weeks in the summer where some areas would say don't use it. But they have different regulations in different places, so it's worthwhile to find out. You know, we also sell an ash pan, and you can also uh, put another sidewall in place. And I don't want to go on about the stoves, but that makes it a fully enclosed cooking surface so it meets a lot of the requirements for some fire bands not all fire bands so you do have to be aware of it there are times where i won't you know i won't take a a natural fuel stove into the woods do you cook over campfires i do absolutely um yeah i i like to do all sorts of activities outdoors so i'm definitely not limited myself to one style of cooking and campfires dutch ovens all the above it's it's great and it's a very social setting too because there's usually a lot of people that come around the fire and there's so many fun things that you can make so absolutely yes i do so tell us about this um adventure dining guide and this tv opportunity that you're having here absolutely so i'm teaming up with emerging sports tv which is part of the cbs sports network and we're going to be doing seven branded features this year and that's part of seven episodes that are going to be airing on CBS Sports. In addition, we're also teaming up with a couple different media platforms, uh, Unreal Me, um, and the second one is Over the Top Channel. And these are both subscription channels that are shown through different media devices. So it's neat. There's a, a lot of content that we're working on building right now and a lot of different opportunities to get out to a larger audience. And, you know, the neat thing about food and spending time in the wilderness is that a lot of people can relate to it. So even if you're not an extreme athlete, even if you're just a weekend warrior, everybody has that constant need to eat and and that interest in food. And I think with this foodie culture that's coming up, a lot more people are starting to appreciate the whole cooking and nutrition side of food. So it's exciting. Oh, that's that's great. Congratulations. Thank so you so much. That could not have been easy to get that lined up. Do you have any hints for people that are interested in trying to connect with uh, the television industry? You know, honestly, just keep knocking on doors. That's all I've been doing for the past year is just talking to as many people as I can and trying to get the word out there. And eventually the right person came around and they said, I love what you're doing. Let's let's get on it. So just keep at it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a very general tip, but you know, the more content that you have and the more that you really work on finding things that people can relate to, the more reception that you're going to get. And it's going to be easier to get to a larger audience. Yeah, good words. So how about another recipe? Ooh, um, you know, what are you, what are you in the mood for? Mediterranean. I'm, I'm on your site, so this is a test. Okay. I, I have the cheat sheet right in front of me. <laughs> Mediterranean style, I've got so many fun things. Um, couscous, it's so easy. And this is kind of like the outdoorsy person's go-to, I feel. that A lot of people I talk to, couscous recipes, because all you have to do is just boil water, add whatever flavoring you'd like, and then just let the pasta sit in it. And that's all couscous is. It's just little teeny bits of pasta that cook in five minutes. So it's so easy. It saves a lot of fuel, and you can add tons of bold flavors and lots of awesome ingredients. So that's kind of my base. I'll start with 
couscous and olive oil, then add in, you know, cheeses and salamis, whatever I have with me, and just mix it all in a big pot and serve it. And again, you know, each ingredient kind of comes down to how much time I have, the length, their uh, shelf life, how much time I'm spending in the backcountry, and how many people I'm feeding. But I just, I love making couscous, especially for big groups. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T.com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. I'm gluten-free. Okay. And I have to throw the caveat out there. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you gluten-free weenies. I get it. I get it. I understand. A lot of people do gluten-free because they think it's a good health option, and I think that they're right. But I'm gluten-free for medical reasons. So for me, it's pretty serious. Definitely. What gluten-free options do I have? Yeah, you know what? Actually, rice. That's awesome is rice comes in and rice noodles, so you can make soups with it. You can make pastas. I highly recommend, again, going to an Asian supermarket because they have whole wheats. They have regular rices, and it's just kind of a good place to start and find a dish that works for you. And even in that situation, you know, you can grab some miso paste or powder, um, add some dried vegetables, some dehydrated jerkies, whatever you want, throw it all in a pot with some rice noodles it's gluten-free and it's going to be great flavors and yeah it's just that's what i i know there's a lot of people that are kind of in that same boat and i do get a lot of people talking to me about gluten-free recipes so there's tons of options and i think that you know starting with rice is a good way to go cool so a rice base and build on that with what you have definitely yep because you definitely need those carbohydrates i think that's a big thing in a lot of gluten-free diets that people omit but when you're exercising that much, your body is burning through so many calories that you need those simple carbohydrates for that quick energy and the complex carbohydrates for that long energy. So those are your whole wheats and your uh, flour base. So, I mean, that's something that if you don't have that, you're missing that big structure of your backcountry nutrition. So throw in the whole wheat rice noodles or the you know regular rice, and then you'll get that needed complex carbohydrates and simple carbohydrates. Well, here's a question for you, and this might yep. might really be a curveball. So because I live in Colorado and we backpack at altitude a lot, the water doesn't huh? boil very hot. 
Nope. So, any advice about how to cook at altitude when your water just doesn't get hot enough to do what it would at sea level? You know, that is another good one. And um, it is it is a common problem, and a lot of people I do talk to have that same issue. And, you know, there's a lot of options, and one of them, you can go stoveless. And believe it or not, but, you know, if you have ways of using your water for drinking purposes where you don't need to boil it down, it's a good option. And that way you don't have to worry about the fuel not working right or the stove not working properly because that is a big problem when you're at high altitude. So, you know, maybe in those situations where you're high up, have a sandwich meal or something that you get a lot of that great nutrients in those fats, but you don't have to worry about that really, really hot water to make your meal. Well, that's good. And I think people should just be aware of that. If you're going to take your freeze-dried food up to 12,000 feet, you can eat it there. It's going to be a little crunchy. <laughs> but yep. you can do it, you know. So, but that's a good advice there. So maybe just avoid the foods you have to cook when you're that high up. Yeah. Or another option too is if you do want to have a warm meal, but you don't want to, you know, you can't boil your water and you can't get it too hot. Another great option is to have something that's pre-cooked. So if you use a sausage that's already pre-cooked or, you know, a rice that's pre-cooked, you can throw all these things together, add a few flavor packets or some way to bring some flavor to it, just stir it all together. And that way you're not using a lot of fuel and you're not having to bring it up to a high temperature. You're just warming it up. Very cool. I want to go back to your four stages for planning the food for a a trip. You you said storage requirements, duration of the journey, the cooking options, how are you going to cook the food, and then personal style. But I want to pull that into some of the categories on your website. So you have water sports. So what kinds of meals work with water sports versus some of these others? Uh, For that one, let's talk about the storage requirements because, you know, you're on a boat, you have a cooler, most likely it's really, really hot. So you just kind of have to think of things that can melt with the water in the cooler. (laughs) So you don't want things that are just going to get everything mushy and crazy. You want durable foods that last well, that you can eat in different situations on the water. Um, And of course, then you have the sun, you have the heat. So kind of take those things into consideration. You know, we interviewed uh, some river runners that do rafting, and that was one of the things that came out was that they can carry the weight. So, holy cow, they'll carry the the steak dinner and and the fancy drinks and everything else because the boats can manage it. And so that totally changes your options. Exactly. And that's kind of why I like to look at those four steps because, you know, once you have an idea, and that's why I start with storage first because really that lets me know if I have refrigeration, how much space I have, and it really helps me narrow down my field of what foods are available for me. So believe it or not, Michelle, we've already used up most of our time, but we love to close out the show with some stories that are inspirational or funny. Do you have anything like that that might be food related? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> one of my first backpacking experiences when I was in the States is I went up to Conundrum Hot Springs in Colorado and I did not have a stove with me at the time. So I was trying to think of, you know, what's a different creative way to cook and have a nice hot meal without bringing a stove. And through one thought process or another, I came up with, you know what, why don't I just use the hot spring? So I ended up going to the store. I went to Trader Joe's and they have these great pre-cooked rice packets and uh, pre-cooked curries that uh, it's like Indian style curries. So I grabbed a couple of those. We ran up to the hot spring and I used a rock, put the meal under a rock and just let it cook next to a hot vent. And it was the easiest cooking 
I've ever done in my life because I just got to sit in a hot spring and relax the whole time. And then sure enough, I had this great hot meal that came in a packet that all I had to do was just open up the packet, grab a spoon, dig in, and everybody around me was insanely jealous. It was awesome. <laughs> Geothermal cooking. I haven't had the it's opportunity geothermal. to do that yet. Yep. That's so awesome. there's actually a, a lot of different things you can do with it. And you can try sous vide where you let the hot spring cook some meat for you. And then after it's really had a chance to marinate and cook, you could take that meat out of the bag put it on a flame, just cook the outside, and then you have a really nice roast. So mm, that sounds use good. whatever's available to you. You know, it doesn't just always have to be the traditional one way of cooking. Get creative. Have fun with it. Just use your environment. That's awesome. Well, Michelle, tell our listeners again how they can find more information about all of this. Absolutely. So you can visit AdventureDiningGuide.com. You can also follow me on social media, Instagram, at Adventure Dining Guide. Check out Pinterest. There's tons of great links on my website for recipes, for videos. If you have any recipe that you'd like to share, I'm always looking for people's feedbacks. So please reach out, share your stories, share your recipes, and I'll feature them on my website. Very cool. Well, Michelle, thank you for helping us to try to solve the problem of how to eat, especially when weight really matters in the wilderness. I like your ideas, and I love all these different recipes on your website, AdventureDiningGuide.com. Good stuff. Thanks for your time. Thank you guys so much. Happy trails and happy adventures. Yeah, and as always, until the next show, get out there. Have some fun. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do tell your friends about us. And if you know of people that you would like to hear interviewed on the Adventure Sports Podcast, let us know. We'll get them on here. Thanks. Take care.